Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. Well, good morning, Candeo family. Uh, I kind of hope that Drew would get this out of the way so I wouldn't have to do it. Um, it's going to be difficult for me to get these words out. Um, go Hawks. That was forced. That really was forced. I'm just playing to the crowd, but I know there's a big game on today. Caitlin Clark, she is must-watch TV. Uh, I lost a bet this week, and so if anybody has a large Iowa shirt that I could borrow on Friday to wear to my kids' school, um, I'll warn you, I'm going to burn it after wearing it. Uh, so uh, if you want to throw that my way, if you have like a sacrifice you want to give on that, I'll, I'll, I'll take it, burn it when it's done, but... Uh, go Hawks. So, big day. Uh, if you have a Bible, I would love for you to join me in Titus 3. Uh, this is not going to be a Palm Sunday text. And so, uh, our worship and times of prayer, you know, we're kind of focusing on, on remembering what this day like fits, how it fits historically. But today, we're actually teaching-wise, finishing up our journey through the book of Titus. And today, we reach the end. I want you to think about this for a little bit. Uh, but this is the question I kind of want to start off today with, and we'll come back to it at the end. But when you think about like words and phrases to describe the type of church that Jesus loves, what words or phrases come to mind? Maybe you think of forgiving, gracious, joyful, others-centered, uh, a hospital for the sick, loving, things like that. Those, those words kind of come to mind. Well, let me ask you this follow-up question. What then does the church do when there is somebody who would claim to be a follower of Christ, claim to be a part of this family, yet is persisting in sin, open rebellion with no remorse? And this has moved beyond just a momentary slip-up. This has become sadly characteristic of that person's life. And beyond that, now it's threatening to disunify the whole church creating division, or harm others as a result of their sin? What do you do with a person like that? Like, what if there was somebody within our church that emerged, that began to twist scriptures, take the things of Christ that we believe to be really simple when it comes to the gospel, and then begin to pervert them, to speak things that aren't true? They're attracting an audience to themselves and is beginning to do harm among our people. What would we do with that? Or... Uh, what would we do if there was somebody who, knowing what God clearly commands as far as what our lives should look like and things like that, decides to walk in the exact opposite direction, begins to live a lifestyle that is completely opposed to the things of God? And not only is their sin personal, now it's beginning to cause other people to stumble. It's even creating divisions among the church and even how to respond. What do you do with a person like that? Or, or what do you do in a situation where you have somebody who is a consistent drain on church resources, not just like Candeo resources, but on like your individual resources, constantly asking for help, constantly asking for a handout. But every time you offer them something, every time you try to help them back to their feet, they refuse to take steps forward, but remain in that spot. And they're exhausting the good efforts of the people of this church. What do you do in those situations? Is there, by chance, possibly uh, limits to the open arms of the church? This answer may surprise you, 
but it's yes. Now, before you like tune me out and, and label me as like calloused, judgmental, harsh, all those things, give me, give me 31 minutes and five seconds, okay? Give me that. But understand the examples I just gave you are not just like hypothetical, like what ifs. These are real situations that you can read about in your Bible. They're in 1 Corinthians 5, 2 Thessalonians 3, and Titus 3, where we're at today. And the command that we're given, the call that we're given is to reject such a person. This is where Titus has been taking us. Each week as we've gathered together, 46 verses, six times in this book of Titus, he has referred to this call for our lives to be defined by good works. God is consistently beating one drum as we walk through the book of Titus, and that drum is for us if we're going to claim Christ, it has to look like something. And here, the command now is that if there's somebody that's in our midst that refuses to go that direction with us and actually is now standing in opposition and beginning to lead people the other way, to confront them with love, to warn them multiple times, and if they refuse to repent, to reject them, to be done with them. This is what it says. I'll read it again. Titus 3, 9 through 11. This is a difficult text, guys. Uh, he says, But avoid foolish debates, genealogies, quarrels, and disputes about the law because they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a divisive person after a first and second warning, for you know that such a person has gone astray and is sinning. He is self-condemned. So this is maybe when sirens start going off in your mind and go like, well, my, my Jesus would never do that. I, I want to just pull back for a bit. What we're talking about today is often referred to as church discipline, uh, though that phrase never appears in your Bible. Understand that I didn't invent the idea of church discipline, and Paul, who wrote the words to Titus, as God spoke through him, did not invent the process of church discipline. Uh, Jesus did. This is what Jesus said to his followers. If a brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he won't listen to you, take one or two others with you, so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. And if he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church. And if he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile and tax collector to you. The reality of our sinful nature is this, church family. Because we are sinners and we are prone to wander, in a healthy church, church discipline is in a sense happening all the time. Where one believer, a brother or sister, in love, first taking the, the plank out of their own eye, will then in love see and help another believer in their life see their sin and turn from it. That should be happening all the time. But what Jesus tells us here is that if you have that first conversation just between the two of you and they refuse to listen, now you should be calling in reinforcements. The motive here is love and the goal is restoration. The motive is always love. The goal is always restoration. The first step is that you should go one-on-one, -on -one, have a private conversation. But if they refuse to listen, then pull in one to two others. And if they refuse to listen, then, then tell the church. And I want to make this clear. When we're in Matthew 18 here, what we're talking about here, the, the issue is not sin, right? We all have sin. 
We get that. The issue here is not sin. The issue is unrepentance. Church discipline is not in response to sin in a person's life. Church discipline is a response to unrepentance in a person's life. That is moved beyond temporary unrepentance to now characteristic unrepentance. And if at any point in this conversation they repent, they turn, we celebrate a restored brother or sister. But if they refuse to listen even to the church, this is what Jesus says, let them be like a Gentile or tax collector among you. Now, church, I want to ask a really important question here. How do we treat tax collectors and sinners at Candale? We welcome them. We love them. We pursue them as a person in need of the gospel. Right? What we have here, when we're talking about this version of church discipline that, that ends at this spot, like, I'm not talking about something that's cold and harsh. I'm not sure what experiences you've had with church discipline in the past. Maybe you saw something that looked very punitive, and, and it, was, it was full of shame. It was full of gossip, things like that. We're not about that. God's people are not to be about that. The heart of church discipline, as we walk through this process, is the heart of a shepherd who's going after that one lost sheep, who's left the 99 behind and is going after the one to see them restored to Christ. Does anybody know where that parable is in our Bibles about the shepherd who leaves the 99 and goes after the one? I just read for you Jesus' words in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. The parable about the shepherd that leaves the 99 and goes after the one is Matthew 18, 10 through 14. So one outcome of church discipline is that you no longer see somebody as a brother or sister in Christ. You now see them as a person in need of the gospel. Still welcome here, but you are pursuing them, believing that they don't know Christ. The, the fruit of their life evidences they don't know Jesus. For us, practically at Kendo Church, if you were or are a member at our church, and this is where we get in the church discipline process, we will at that point remove you from membership, tell you you are welcome to attend here, but we no longer lay our hand of affirmation on your shoulder and say, this is my brother, my sister in Christ. We actually say, we've got reason to doubt that. And we want you to know that because we're still pursuing you with grace and love, wanting to see you turn from the path that you're on and be restored to Christ. So that's one outcome of church discipline. But here, Titus 3, 1 Corinthians 5, 2 Thessalonians 3, that's not the outcome they're talking about. What they're talking about in these passages now takes church discipline to that next level of when all of a sudden you have somebody where the sin is no longer just a, a personal thing, but now it's deemed as dangerous and divisive, and it's causing a threat to the health of those around them. To see sin as like a virus that can be infectious, that begins to move, and you're starting to see that happen, what do you do then at that point? When you see in 1 Corinthians 5 and 2 Thessalonians 3 and Titus 3, 
that it's beginning to cause harm to others. This is what Jesus says about those who would cause others to stumble. This is also in Matthew 18. He says, it would be better for him to have a millstone hung around his neck and he were thrown into the depths of the sea. Or Paul says here, reject a divisive person after a first and second warning, for you know that such a person has gone astray and is sinning and is self-condemned. We saw in chapter one that Paul was telling Titus, your job is to rebuke these false teachers that are ruining entire households, that are spreading in and among and causing lots of harm. The rebellious false teachers rebuke them. He was telling the elders, you need to be raised up and you need to refute them. And now he's telling the job for the rest of the church and your job in regards to that person, those people is to reject them. Stay with me a little bit longer. I've mentioned this example a few times already, 1 Corinthians 5. I want to just kind of read kind of another situation in our Bibles where we're commanded to actually reject somebody. We see that laid out before us, church discipline that ends with removal. It's 1 Corinthians 5 says this, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and the kind of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated among the Gentiles. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. Let that hit you for a second. Pretty gross, pretty off. And you are arrogant. Well, I pause there. He's like, how could, how could a church be like proud of something like that or arrogant about something like that? Not quite sure what was going on in Corinth at this time, but likely one of two things was happening. They were either proud of themselves for being so tolerant of a person's sin and going, look at the amount of love we have as a church that we welcome even people like that. Or that they were celebrating that the grace of God is so deep and wide that it's like a free pass to do whatever we want. Both of those being, things being grievous errors, that's possibly why they were arrogant he says, you shouldn't be arrogant. You should be filled with grief and remove from your congregation the one who did this. Even though I am absent in the body, I am present in spirit. As the one who is present with you in this way, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who has been doing such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit and with the power of our Lord Jesus, hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on that day. This isn't about just pers- like, you know, permanent banishment. This is a last-ditch effort to see this person recognize, this hard-hearted sinner recognize the error of their ways and possibly be saved, still restored. And then Paul adds this about the seriousness of sin. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as indeed you are. I get it. Many of the people in the room are like, all right, I don't want to talk about this anymore. Give me like five more minutes on this, right? I want you to see this as a beautiful thing. We need to understand that sin is serious. The most deadly thing that we will ever know is sin. Sin is like this spiritual virus that invades our souls and it infects every part of us. It's deceptive and it speaks lies to our minds. It 
hardens our heart. It, it corrupts our motives. It fills us with worthless cravings. And as we kind of fill them up and try to satisfy them, they just cry out for more and more and more. And sin will not stop until it devours all of you. It wants you dead. And Satan celebrates its work. And what 1 Corinthians 5 is reminding us here is of the spreading power of sin. Sin is not something that should be coddled or played around with or tolerated. It is meant to be addressed, called out, and shunned. And what sin can do is it can work through a whole person. It can also work through a whole church. It's invasive. It's infectious. And that's what we saw and see here in Crete. When Paul is talking in 3.11 about this person who has gone astray, some of your Bible translations use the word that they are warped or perverted. Literally, the phrase in Greek means they are twisted, like turned inside out. This is the person's settled state of mind that even when confronted in their sin, they are so twisted, so perverted, they may even claim that God is with them on this whole thing. But they are flipped upside down and inside out, and what they are committed to are things that are worthless and unprofitable. In Crete, likely their message looks something like, oh, you have Jesus, but you need Jesus plus something else to have all that God wants for you. It was a Jesus plus message. And these false teachers were working their way into households and bringing ruin and harm to many people. Something like that you don't just look at and kind of turn a blind eye to. You're supposed to speak out, you call out, you address, you rebuke, you try to correct, you rebuke again and again, and then eventually have nothing to do with that person. Brian Chapel said this in regards to this text, and I think he said this rightly, that there are those who love to divide, which is what's happening here in Crete, and those who divide out of necessity. That at some point, the primary mission of, of us as shepherds as a church, or the primary mission of us as a church together, moves away from a rescue mission for this wayward believer and moves into a spot of protection, a protection of the flock mission. The motive of every step of this discipline process from the first to the last is love, not judgment. So this may look different in our day and age and we're not sure what false teachers what might arise or what sin we may see and encounter. But as a church, we do have to have the guts and the courage at times to draw lines. To draw a line. God in his love is serious about sin. And we need to in love engage one another about it. And for those who refuse to hear correction, persist in waywardness, there are two outcomes on that as we shepherd a church. But not only is God serious about sin, 
He is serious about good works, and I want to get to that. Go back to verse 8 with me, would you? I want to read just two verses here. He says, this saying is trustworthy, and I want to insist on these things, so that those who have believed God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. These are good and profitable for everyone. And then again, in verse 14, he says this, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works for pressing needs, so that they will not be unfruitful. If you're taking notes, this is the question that this text is putting before us today. Very simply, what are you devoted to? What are you devoted to? Notice in both of those verses, verse 18 and verse 14, the same word is used in regards to good works, that we should be a people devoted to good works. The fact that he uses that word twice, I think proves it's not an accident. And I love that he uses the word devoted because he doesn't set the bar too high for us. He's not saying be perfect in good works. He's also not setting the bar too low for us and saying that we should desire good works, but we should be devoted to good works. Like, I'm curious when I say the word devoted, like what ideas come to mind? When I think about like, like what we're devoted to, like one of the things in my life that I'm devoted to is I'm devoted to my wife. If you're married in the room, hopefully that's true for you as well, husband or wife, that you are a devoted husband, you are a devoted wife. Now, being a devoted husband means a lot of things in my world, but it at least means three things, and these are principles that carry over from my marriage into what our relationship should be like with good works. So follow me on this one, but three things that a devoted husband should be marked by and three things that I want to be marked by as a devoted husband is that I, one, I prioritize my wife, I make sacrifices for my wife, and I am faithful to my wife. Here's what I mean. A devoted husband prioritizes his wife in that if you ever get to a spot in life where you are too busy for your wife, you're too busy, right? If you're ever at a spot in life where you are too busy for your wife, you are just too busy, a devoted husband prioritizes his wife and makes sure he moves all those other things to the side to make space appropriately so for his wife, who is his priority. I make sacrifices for my wife. A devoted husband makes sacrifices for his wife to meet her needs. He sacrifices time, energy, money, whatever it takes to continue to pursue her. A devoted husband is sacrificial in regards to his wife. He prioritizes his wife. He's sacrificial toward his wife. He is faithful to his wife, regardless of the ROI. You know what that is? That I am faithful to my wife, regardless of the return on investment. That the more I spill myself out for her, I, I spill myself out for her, I, the more I give to her, it's not linked to and contingent to whether she reciprocates that or not. But I will be faithful to her no matter what. That's what a devoted husband looks like. And it's that same word, it's that same picture then that we should carry over to our relationship with good works as Christians. If you are devoted to Christ, you are to be devoted, keyword, devoted to good works. That good works should have the priority in your life. If you are too busy for good works, you're too busy. 
You're looking at your schedule going by, I got this and this and this whole thing and then that and whatever. I don't, I don't have time to be nice to people. I don't have time to speak a kind word. I don't have time to pull over and throw an arm around a person who's suffering. I, I don't have time to see that person's needs and then to try to engage it. I, I don't have time. I don't have time for all that. If you are devoted to Christ, you are devoted to good works. And if you are too busy for good works, then you are too busy. My fear this morning for our church is not laziness. I don't think you have an abundance of free time on your hands. My biggest concern is that you are busy with the wrong things. But for us as believers, good works needs to be a priority of our lives. We need to be sacrificially committed to good works. You're going to have to redirect some of your time, your energy, your financial resources. You may have to make space in your budget to figure out like, how do I even have space to take money out of my back pocket and give it to others who have needs? You're gonna have to look at yourself in the mirror and say, that was wrong, that response was wrong. And each day, continue to put one foot in front of the other to continue to remain committed to good works, repenting of your sin, apologizing to others when you are wrong and at fault, and continually pursuing good works, being faithful to them, regardless of the ROI, regardless of as you pour yourself out, you ever get anything back on this. I'll just caveat this real quick because I'm not being person specific. See, there are times that we can pour ourselves out for the good of other people and they just take and take and take and take and take and you could exhaust yourself on them and they will never step out of the spot that they're in and start walking on their own two feet. It may be at times good for you to look at that and go, I love you, but right now I'm beginning to enable you. I need to move my faithful commitment to good works towards somebody else. I'm not talking about person-specific. I'm talking about action-specific, that you are a person faithful to good works and all things at all times. Does that make sense? Because I know there's some great-hearted people in here that you continue to pour yourself out into this one spot, and I go, man, if you maybe move that to this person, I think you'd see God do a great work there. And that takes wisdom to know at that point, when do you need to move those a bit? But if you're devoted to Christ, you need to be devoted to good works. I want to make sure that this is clear because I could see some in the room asking, so what are the good works that God wants of me, okay? Like, can you just lay those out real quick? Give me a checklist. Um, I'll just tell you this, church. The book of Titus is meant to be the checklist for you. If you want to know what good works God wants of you, that's the purpose of this whole book. We saw it in chapter one, right? Like not all of us are called to be elders, but every one of us should aspire to be characterized by the things that characterize elders, right? So if God says, hey, these are the type of people that I want leading my church, people who are blameless, not bullies, gentle, hospitable, and 15 other attributes there, Take note of those things. Those are the good works that God desires for you. We saw those right away in chapter one. Chapter two, you remember this, when Stephen taught about how the older should be taking the younger under their wing and mentoring them. That's a good work. 
that we would be a multi-generational church where there's mentoring taking place, there's discipleship taking place, and what marks our lives is self-control, not being addicted to alcohol, being reverent in behavior. What type of employees are we? Are we, are we kind and submissive? Are we back-talking? What things define our works? Is it integrity and dignity? We saw it in the start of chapter 3. And this is where you begin to notice that good works are not just about what we do. They're also about who we are. It says in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, that we should submit to rulers and authorities, be obedient, ready for every good work, that we slander no one. We avoid fighting. It would be kind. Always showing your gentleness to all people. Don't forget what we've learned in this journey through Titus and the call to good works. And now Paul adds, as we get to these final verses, he adds in verse 8, that good works is really anything that is good and profitable for those around me. Verse 14, that they meet pressing needs. So if you look at something and want to just ask about it, like, okay, God, you've opened my eyes, you help me to see this thing, ask yourself, would this action build up or tear down? Good works build up. Does this action strengthen or weaken? Because good works strengthen. Does this action unify or unnecessarily divide? Because good works unify. Does this meet a pressing need of my brother and sister? Yes, then that's a good work. That we should not be the type of people that look at somebody who's in need of clothing or in need of food or in need of like a warm place to stay and say, hey, be warm and well-fed. I'm praying for you. But James calls us to be people who actually step into that moment and go, oh, you don't have food, here's mine. Oh, you, you don't have a coat, here's mine. Oh, you don't have a place to stay, come stay with us. This whole book has just been laying out for us the good works that God desires for our lives. And God also wants to make clear that we've got our motives right. That's what we saw last week, right? That our good works don't fuel God's love for us, but God's good work for us fuels our good works for other people. We saw this last week, verses four through eight, that it's God's good works for us that fuels our good works for others. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. He poured out his Spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. That's the motivation that leads into the good works, that this saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed God, who have experienced his goodness, might be careful to devote themselves to good works. These are good and profitable for everyone. Now, it's always dangerous to do this when you start naming names from the stage because you're inevitably gonna miss a few. But as we close the book of Titus, I do want to name names of people that would never draw attention to themselves, but I'll do it. But I'm doing it for this reason, because they would never say this themselves. 
But I would say it, it would be great if more people imitated them. And this list is pretty personal because these are people that have meant a lot to me and I, I just want to take a moment and say thank you to them. Uh, I don't even know if they're in the room right now. Um, the first one's a no-brainer. Maybe you all could like raise your hand and be like, I'll second that one. But Angela Schwartz has been an absolute godsend in my life. I'll tell you what, guys, if you want to love me really well, love my kids. And she did something, she's going to say it was small. It was huge for me. My daughter got sick and stayed home from school, I don't know, a month and a half ago, and I stayed home with her. And Angela dropped off the most incredible like gift basket arrangement for her. But the sweetest thing that she left was a note that was a prayer that she was praying for my daughter. And I think the thing that was so cool is it was such a beautiful moment to tell my six-year-old daughter that there are people in our church family that know who she is and are praying for her. Like for a six-year-old to grow up as a part of a church family and to know the love and the care of a larger body, not just her parents, it's a beautiful thing. Angela's helped me love people better. I think of Glenn Keith. He's walking around this morning with one of those like safety team earbuds in. Oh, you're over here. All right, everybody look at Glenn. Some people don't like attention. I can probably call Glenn out and give him a moment. Guys, every benevolence phone call that Kendale receives, somebody that's in need, that needs help, every one of those calls gets sent over to Glenn for him to personally, as a representative for our church, help walk that person through their situation and help them get the, the resources, the, the help that they need. And he does it with incredible wisdom and care. The, the empathy that Glenn shows, the skill though that he has to, to help decide what is enabling and what is actually like helping you get to a better spot. I've never been around somebody as well-equipped as Glenn in that. And it took years for him to get to that spot because he's so well-connected across the Cedar Valley. He also knows who to pull in to help people. And Glenn, I couldn't thank you enough. You've helped me love people better. And now you're giving your wife some credit, which you should, uh, but they are an incredible team. But thank you, Glenn. Another face you maybe should know, but don't, but I'm gonna put a name to it, is Karen Perez. Um, if you come in on a Sunday morning, depending on what service you come into, uh, she's likely one of the first faces you'll ever see when you step onto this church property. And she can't stand the thought of a guest coming to Candeo Church and opening the doors for themselves. So even when it's like negative 20 outside, she's standing out there with a winter coat on, gloves, holding the door wide open and taking all the heat of the building outside. <laughs> but I don't care. Because what she's trying to do matters a lot more. She just wants people to feel welcome here. She wants to look everybody in the eyes that they wouldn't have to grab the handle themselves and just tell them, good morning. And if you know Karen, you know that's not even like a hundredth of all the things that she does to care for our church family, but it's just an expression of sacrifice that she makes on a regular basis for our people. I'll go one more. Mark Pingle. If you don't know who Mark Pingle is, can you raise your hand? Yeah, I was gonna say, this is unsung hero here. We gotta give Mark some credit here. Um, if the building is clean, when you walk into it, anytime you ever walk in here, that's because of Mark. Uh, Mark takes care of our facility and does a tremendous job, but I'll set that aside because I could celebrate his work. I just want to celebrate the man. 
I have never heard Mark in all my years of knowing him ever say a mean or slanderous thing about anybody. Never once. All Mark ever talks about are positive things about other people, or he's singing hymns and songs as he cleans the building. So wherever you are, you're always hearing worship taking place, or he'll talk to you about the twins, which I don't know what there is to talk about the twins. (laughs) But he's just so kind and gentle. I've not met a person quite like that. All the time, any time of day, kind and gentle. And he has a job that is so unglorious. It's defined by good works. And there's, there's so many others. There's so many others. I'm leaving half of my sheet here, but you guys get the point. God has done a tremendous work among us because of the great work of the gospel in our lives personally. It's spilling out and it's It's happening. Your lives are changing, and I can see good works all over this place. But I think we could all look at ourselves in the mirror and go, but God isn't finished with us yet. He's not. He's not. I started this morning by asking you, when I talk about the church that God loves, and I ask you to find words and phrases that describe the type of church that God loves, and I asked you what words and phrases come to mind. Did the phrase devoted to good works come to mind? Because church, it, it absolutely should. The call of Jesus on our lives is not one of high character and good intentions. It's a call on our lives that our faith in Jesus should look like something, that our life should be marked by actions, that our faith be marked by fruitfulness, that looks like something. And I just got to ask the question, what would God do with a church that was not only devoted to bold and courageous gospel proclamation, but matched that with bold and courageous gospel demonstration? What would God do with a church that had both of those things? My little, like, Bar was just flashing there. I don't know if they call that a cursor or what, you know, just flashing on that page for about a day and a half because I didn't know how to answer that question. What would God do if we were able to match both of those things? I sat there, I was totally stumped, didn't know what to write, and I just put this phrase. I don't know how to put it into words, but I would love to see it. And it's obvious as we walk through the book of Titus that that is the desire of God, not just for the church of Crete, but for this church and for all of his churches. I want to pray that that be true. Can we pray together? Uh, Lord Jesus, I'll be the first to admit your work is far from over in my life. Graciousness does not define every aspect of my life. Quick to jump toward good works is not something that defines my life. Even having eyes to see needs around me, uh, that is something I lack. And beyond that, even the empathy to enter in, to truly feel sorry for somebody rather than for my prideful side to go, oh, well, they, they probably got themselves in that situation. I'm not going to help. 
or for the way that I can justify so many sins in my life, the way that I may be slander some or speak mean and with mean tones or others, or I, I harbor bitterness in my heart, Lord. There is just so much work that you desire to do in my life. Yet, and I plead for you this morning that today would be another day of experiencing your great grace, your great call on my life, that I know that today I stand righteous before you, cleaned and washed cleaned, filled with the power of the Holy Spirit to be changed and to be different. And so I plead, I plead and pray, change me change us and do something among us that we could never even put into words, but we just delight when we see it. Thank you for those around us who set a great pace. And thank you, Jesus, that we can fix our eyes on you and see what righteousness looks like, goodness looks like. And by your spirit's power, we'll imitate you in them. Amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.